Thanks, Tim. Well, you know, after having two weeks of fall stolen from us by the snow in October, we got a week back this, this last week, didn't we? What a glorious week it has been if you've kept the television and the radio and your computer off. There's been a lot of other information that's been, been shared, but we won't go into that today, but I appreciate very much, Tim, uh, that encouragement that comes from a brother in Africa. The year was 1980, and the eyes of the world were focused upon Lake Placid, New York, for the Winter Olympics being held there. In the hockey semifinals, it was the vaunted Soviet national team against the U.S. American team. The Soviet Union had won the previous four gold medals, and in fact, for the past 20 years, they had dominated the hockey world. They would play the NHL All-Stars and, and beat them by scores like six to nothing. That's a drubbing in hockey. So they got this, this vaunted Soviet national team, and in the summer of 79, uh, the U.S. coach, Herb Brooks, had tryouts. And ultimately, he chose 20 players, and most of them were college students. And uh, the average age of those 20 players was 21. And so, uh, still in college, and they're playing against the Soviets. So that fall, the American team engaged in a lot of exhibit games, culminating in, in a game at uh, Madison Square Garden just before the Olympics, in which the U.S. team played the Soviet national team, and the Soviets won by a score of 10 to 3. So the Olympics began, both the uh, U.S. team and the Soviets uh, won their pool play, and they met in the semifinals. So what you're going to see in the video here is a remake of the speech that Coach Brooks gave in the locker room before the beginning of that semifinal game. Let's look at the screen. Great moments are born from great opportunity. And that's what you have here tonight, boys. That's what you've earned here tonight. One game. If we played them 10 times, they might win nine. Not this game. Not tonight. Tonight, we skate with them. Tonight, we stay with them. And we shut them down because we can. Tonight, 
We are the greatest hockey team in the world. You were born to be hockey players. Every one of you. And you were meant to be here tonight. This is your time. Their time is done. It's over. I'm sick and tired of hearing about what a great hockey team the Soviets have. Screw them. This is your time. Now go out there and take it. Does that inspire you? I've almost memorized that speech, and it still gives me goosebumps. It inspired that team. They went out and beat the Soviets, and a couple days later, they won the gold medal. How is it that a, a group of college students, college players, can beat the greatest team uh, on the face of the earth? Now, these lads, they were talented without question. And some of them had great careers in the NHL. But I would put to you that it was the inspirational leadership of Coach Brooks that caused that team to perform so well. Leadership. That's what we want to talk about today. David as a leader. Now, some of you are, are here today, and you do not perceive yourself as being a leader. But I would challenge your assumption if you think that you're not a leader because leadership is influence. In its simplest definition, that's what leadership is. Leadership is influence. And if you have influence in even one other person's life, you are a leader. And therefore, I believe this message is for you. So we're going to talk about leaders and leadership. Let's look at Psalm 78, verses 70 through 72. In my estimation, it's a great summary uh, of David's ministry there as king, and also it's so very, very significant for us as we think about this concept of leadership. Now, frankly, uh, you don't hear many sermons in churches about leadership. It's too bad because it is so vitally important. And there are some children... And there might be some students who have that gift, and we want to hone their understanding of leadership through this message. So here's what is said of David in Psalm 78. God chose David, his servant, and he took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, and with skillful hands, he led them beautiful passage of Scripture. This passage is so important to me that I have shared it uh, with our elders. I've shared it with our staff. And I'm sharing it with you today because it is vital for this entire congregation to understand the principles here as the search begins for its next senior pastor. So a couple of thoughts that come out of those verses. First of all, we see God's sovereignty on display. 
we are told that God is the one who chose David. Now, right now, God is preparing the person who he will choose and reveal to the congregation who is to be your next shepherd leader. Sheep and shepherds is referred to four times in this passage of Scripture. Those were skills that, that David had working with literal sheep, and they would be helpful when David would be shepherding people. It's a reminder to us that God never wastes anything in our lives. Our past, our experiences, our personalities, out of all those things over which we have no control, God is sovereign. And He can redeem and use things for His purposes if we would be willing to let Him do His wonderful work within us. Then there is these two terms, shepherding and leading. Now, this is in a verse that we call poetic parallelism. What that means is that the second line complements the first line, but it adds oftentimes a nuance to it so that what is taught in this, in this verse is more uh, better described and gives better understanding. And so these two terms, shepherding and leading, they, they overlap. And um, it's good to know that, but these are not identical terms. And the reason we know that is because there are some descriptors that are used so that he shepherds with integrity of heart, but he leads them with skillful hands. So the idea of, sh of shepherding them with integrity of heart is a reference to character. The Hebrew word means purity. Integrity is purity, purity in motives, purity in heart. And sheep want a shepherd who will sincerely love and care for his flock. The second word is, is the word that, that, or descriptors that he led them with skillful hands, which is a reference to competency, having skills. Uh, David was a warrior, and he had skills that permitted him to protect the sheep. So you put the two of them together and you realize that that sheep want a shepherd who will truly love them and care for them with purity of motives and heart, and yet he is skilled enough to protect them from danger. So looking at these verses, I want to give to you what I call the three C's of leadership. These, these are components, these are attributes, these are things to look for in anyone who's going to be a good, godly, effective leader. And so the first C is that of character, integrity. In a spiritual context, we talk about a person's faith, their, their walk with God, their spiritual formation, the fruit of the Spirit that are on display in a person's life. Did you know that the most difficult person that you will ever lead is yourself. Truly, the most difficult person it is to lead is yourself. Self-leadership, self-control, self-discipline. That's the essence of character. And if we cannot lead ourselves 
and put our own raging desires aside and have them to be governed by the Spirit of God, how in the world could we ever expect anyone else to follow us when our lives are out of control? So self-leadership is character, and it is so incredibly essential. You see, oftentimes leaders are successful initially because of their skills and they enjoy the success. But when you have success based upon skills without having character, ultimately that is a formula for catastrophe and disaster. I liken it to how a sailboat is constructed. There is the mast and the, the sails are connected to the mast. And, of course, when the wind blows, the, the sailboat heels over. What prevents the sailboat from entirely uh, 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 upside down in the water, I forget what they call that, turtling, I think so, yeah, to stop it from turtling, is the keel. So much weight known as the ballast of that keel. Now, what's so interesting about a sailboat is that when you see it sailing, you see the mast and the sails, but you never see the keel. And yet the, the keel is essential for that sailboat to move. I would put to you that, that success is the sails and the mast of a boat, but the keel is the character of a person. A leader who is successful without the character of a keel ultimately is not going to last very long. He will implode. He will either destroy himself or he will destroy the organization that he leads. So the first C is that of character. The second C is that of competence. David led them with skillful hands. Now, leaders perform many tasks, and they will have to display many skills that are called upon in the execution of their responsibilities. Here's something that's really important for the church to understand right now, that studies have shown that the size of the church radically impacts the responsibilities of the senior pastor. So a smaller church needs different skills than a larger church. And so church size can be a very significant factor in the duties, the skills that are needed within the senior pastor role. Perhaps this is why there is so much more that is said in the New Testament about the qualifications, the character of an elder than what is said about their responsibilities. Because as a church goes through different sizes and it goes through different experiences. Truly, there are many different things that will need to be done. But at the heart of all the actions, the decisions of a senior pastor is the keel of character that keeps them from uh, having a disaster. So we've got character, we've got competency, and the third C is chemistry, relational chemistry. It's not in this text, but it is vital. You see, there are good and godly people in every congregation who are gifted and they need to be engaged in service, but they simply lack the people skills to work with others. They should serve, but you just don't want to put them in leadership because they don't know how to work well with others. Remember the movie, The Devil Wears Prada? 
you know, lighthearted movie. Meryl Streep uh, plays Miranda. Miranda is wildly successful as the editor of a fashion magazine. I mean, she has so much in the area of skills, but she lacks all people's skills. And as a result, the office culture there was toxic. It was cutthroat, and people really didn't enjoy working there because Miranda had no relational chemistry. Here's how one lady puts it in a book called Multipliers. She said, there are leaders who drain intelligence, energy, capability from the ones around them, and they always need to be the smartest ones in the room. They are idea killers, the energy sappers, the diminishers of talent and commitment. In other words, they just suck the life out of other people on the team. Now, in contrast with those who are diminishers, she describes these others. On the other side of the spectrum are leaders who use their intelligence to amplify the smarts and capabilities of the people around them. When these leaders walk into a room, light bulbs go off over people's heads, ideas flow, and problems get solved. These are the leaders who inspire employees to stretch themselves to deliver results that surpass expectations. These are the multipliers. Who would you rather work for? No question. You want to work for someone who's got some relational strength, who indeed is a multiplier. So these are the three C's of leadership. Now, there's a fourth C out there that some people think is important in leadership. It's the word charisma. You know, those, those magnetic personalities. And so is charisma essential to leadership? I think the answer is no. Charisma can be helpful, but it's also extremely dangerous. It can be helpful when that person who understands that they have a magnetic personality, it can be helpful if they who, who have that charisma understand that they still need to bring their charismatic personality underneath the filling and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That can be very, very helpful. But it's dangerous when that person walks into a room and, and fills the room with his or her personality without ever considering the leading, the filling, the controlling of the Holy Spirit. That's incredibly dangerous. Temptation may be to depend upon my great personality rather than upon the filling, anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's incredibly dangerous. So, leader doesn't have to have charisma, but the other three are essential. So, let's move beyond leaders and leadership and talk about some leadership practices. In chapters 2 through 8 of 2 Samuel, we see some of the great achievements of David as a leader. And so, um, David was such an effective leader that it is said of him in chapter 3 and verse 36 that all the people took note and they were pleased. Indeed, everything the king did pleased them. Now, between the years of 1938 through 2012, the average approval rating of our presidents 
was 54%. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Can you imagine going to work in a job every day where almost half of the population disapproves of you? Just think about that. How difficult that is. Almost half the people disapprove of you. Talk about a reason for us to pray for our leaders. So incredibly difficult what they're being asked to do these days. Now, David enjoyed the favor of all the people. And so we're going to see some of his practices here that led him to have such incredibly high approval ratings. Now, as you think about your next senior pastor, I believe that these are practices that you would want to have him demonstrate. So, in chapter 2 and verse 1, here's the first practice. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. And David said, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So the first practice that David demonstrates here is that leaders, good leaders, are people of prayer and action. Now, everyone in all the 12 tribes knew that after Saul had died, that David was the appointed and anointed heir to the throne. So, after Saul has been buried, you would think that it would just be natural for David to assume that now's the time to go and to become the king. And yet, before he assumes that, he inquires of the Lord. So, he's a man of prayer as well as action. And, and that's borne out several other times in these chapters. You see, effective leaders, they want to know God's will, but they want to do God's will God's way. And they want to do it in God's timing. And that's where good and godly leaders are, are, are people of prayer as well as action. David demonstrates that. He inquires before he implements. He inquires before he just assumes that he should uh, jump into that throne. So that's the first practice. Second practice is in chapter 3 in verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. Second practice is that good and godly leaders turn division into unity. David inherited a divided people and a divided kingdom. Some were loyal to the house of Saul. Others were loyal to David. And so these chapters are going to describe the, the long and sometimes bloody process by which the kingdom was united under David. What's so clear, however, as these chapters unfold is that David demonstrates a gentleness with his adversaries that ultimately won their hearts. Over the course of time, David, his character, his patience, his judgment, his gentleness, even the decisions and the actions were such that his adversaries ultimately came uh, to David and they said to David, be our leader. 
Can you imagine having such incredible character and competency and the people skills to, to win over your adversaries so that ultimately they come to you and they say, lead us as well as leading the house uh, of Judah. That's incredible. You see, leaders understand the destructive nature of division. And they actively work to bring unity out of that. A third practice is in chapter 5. We're told in verse 6 that the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. One of the, the, the principles here is that good leaders recognize danger and they take action to protect their people. David is a great warrior, and so he defeats the Jebusites in Jerusalem, the Philistines to the west, the Moabites and the Ammonites to the east, the Arameans to the north, and the Edomites to the south. And after he does that, he moves the capital to Jerusalem, which was a very strategic city, easily defended because of the natural terrain. Leaders recognize danger. And they see a problem before it becomes a crisis. Sometimes this, this is known as leading by wandering around. And it, it happens in schools where a principal walks the halls of the, of the school. Uh, a warehouse manager, you know, walks through the warehouse. Uh, and people are just walking around, watching to see what's going on. They're not control freaks but they are in guard. They're looking for problems, recognizing problems before they become disasters. Because, you see, leaders see things that other people don't necessarily see. That's part of who they are. Just this past week at a staff meeting, on our agenda we were talking about an upcoming activity, and, and as the activity was being described, we recognized that there was a danger in how it was being planned. And so we made some course corrections right there in that meeting to ensure that that potential danger would not become to fruition. You see, that's what leaders do. Leaders find danger and they correct it before it becomes a disaster. Number four is in chapter six. Uh, Leaders are, are people who learn from their mistakes. Good leaders learn from their mistakes. Now, what is happening here is, is that David has consolidated the kingdom there in Jerusalem, made it this capital, and he says, we need the ark. Let's bring the ark to the city. The ark symbolized the presence of God, and so uh, they took action to begin to bring the ark, but they did not do it in the prescribed way, and as a result of that, several men died. People were afraid, and David actually, uh, uh, you know, failed at one of his first principles, that of praying before uh, implementing. Well, what happens is, is that David reads the manual, and he says, oh, we didn't do it the right way. Now, there's the real significant principle here. Good intentions, and David's intentions were honorable. Good intentions never override ignoring clear instructions. You know, when the instructions are clear and we ignore them and we tell God, yeah, but my intentions were good, God says, well, if your intentions were good, why didn't you read the clear instructions? 
Sometimes the instructions are very clear. Sometimes not as clear. But when they're clear, we follow them because we want to do God's will in God's way, in God's timing. And so we learn from our mistakes. Uh, Leaders do make mistakes, and because they're prone to action, they have a bent towards action, but not every action is the right action. But the sooner they, they realize that and make those course corrections, the less damage is done. Uh, President John F. Kennedy uh, acknowledges that he made a significant mistake in regards to the Bay of Pigs. Now, a crisis was averted, but it was very tense for a time. And to his credit, President Kennedy took full responsibility for what happened there. And when he made that statement acknowledging his responsibility, he thought that, in essence, his presidency would be over. Well, he was surprised to find that his approval rating jumped into the low 80s when he acknowledged his mistake and his error. There's something about humility that disarms anger. Being proud and being defensive simply adds fuel to the fire. But being humble, admitting our mistakes, making apologies, actually do just the opposite of what they think they will do. People don't lose respect for us. They gain respect for us. And we actually have better support when we are those who learn from our mistakes. We acknowledge them and we say, we'll do better next time. Practice number five is in chapter seven. Good and godly leaders are visionary dreamers. So what happens in chapter seven is that David dreams of building this marvelous temple for God. And he shares his dream with the prophet Nathan. Nathan then hears a message from God, and he relays that message back to David, who had this great dream. Now, a leader's response to his or her dreams is going to tell us a lot about that leader. How well do leaders respond to other people's input in regarding their dreams? And David's response is magnificent in verses 18 through 29. The word that Nathan brings to David is this. David, the dream is good, but you're not going to build it. In fact, you're not going to be alive to even see it. So... David, what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices. And in so doing, he is a demonstration of what Jim Collins calls in um, Good to Great, a level five leader. The highest leader, the most effective leader today is a leader who combines personal humility with professional will. In other words, the organization is not about me. There's not a massive ego in that top position. Personal humility, but there's great passion. There's professional will for the success of the organization. 
That's the kind of leader that you want. One who doesn't have a big ego here, but one who is passionate for the success, the enduring, abiding success of that organization, in this case, the church. Leaders seek to understand the moment, but they have an orientation towards the future. They dream about what is possible. The best leaders are those who understand that the best dream and the best dream that will be accomplished is one in which other people have the opportunity to speak into it. It's going to be a better plan and more people are going to own it because they're able to speak into it. David demonstrates it so beautifully. And that should demonstrate that the, the process by which God reveals his, 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 his plan and his dreams to the church here. So that's number five. And number six is in chapter 8 and verse 15. In fact, it's really a summary of his entire reign. It says this, David reigned over all Israel doing what was just and right for all of his people. What a beautiful summary. Good and godly leaders do what is just and right for all the people. Now, as king, he had unlimited power and resources and popularity. And what does he do? He uses all of that not to make himself great, but he uses it to do what is right and just for all the people. And in that summary... Frankly, I see the, the three components, the three C's of leadership on display. Character, competency, and relational chemistry. Only when those three are working together can you have a statement such as that. That he does what is right and just for all the people. Now, candidly, isn't that what we want from all of our leaders in the church, in education, in government, in business, in nonprofits? Do we not want leaders who will do what is just and right for everyone? Yes, we do. And what a beautiful summary. These were the practices of David. And I think they're worthy of modeling by your next senior pastor. You know, the church is meant to be a, a community. It's the family of God. We're part of a family here. And as such, you will want your next senior pastor to be one who will care for each one of the flock. One who will, will sit and be available to the hurting and the struggling. One who will, will nurture the church family through his teaching of the word of God and bringing stronger marriages and families and many things about our spiritual walk. We want him to be a, a one who will really build the family of God here. But the church is called not only to be a wonderful family and community, but we're also called to be on mission, specifically the Great Commission, to take this message into all of the world. 
And in order for that to occur, the senior pastor is not just a shepherd and a counselor, but he needs to be an equipper. One who is going to help you discover your gifts and empower you to use them in ministry. He needs to be a leader, a leader who demonstrates these practices so that this is a church that does what's right and just before God in the community and around the world. That search is beginning in earnest in the days ahead. To my knowledge, I don't think we've had a time as a congregation to pray about that. So I want us to end today after, I guess, the song won't be sung, but I want us to end our time, my time with you, by corporately praying together for the search process. Will you join me? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you refer to the church as the people of God, the bride of Christ. Revelation calls us lampstands that bring light to a dark world. Lord, without any question, we want this church, this wonderful church, to be a, a, a faith community where all who come through the doors, whether they are young or old or whatever their, their, their spiritual condition, that they would find this to be a place where they could belong and also to become. May it be embracing and loving and caring and sharing so that, Lord, it's a family. But, Lord, you've also called this church to be on mission. Thank you for its history. Lord, over a hundred years ago, there were men and women who had a vision to plant a church here in Kokato. And, and today, after a hundred years, it still is thriving. And we give you thanks for that, for this facility, Lord, and for the next season God, we ask that there would continue to be a strong sense of, of equipping and leading. And so, God, I pray for the search team that, Lord, as they work with the search firm and resumes are submitted and profiles are given, sermons are listened to, and interviews occur. God, raise up your man. Set him apart in such a way that everyone here knows that this is the man of God to lead us in the next season of the church's ministry. God, I pray that it will be so clear that, that after all has been said and all has been done, that we all look back and we say, this is the finger of God upon our church. Lord, make it so abundantly clear that everyone will walk through that, supporting the man that you have chosen. Thank you, Jesus, that you have said that you would build your church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's in accordance with that promise that, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.